Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. Astronauts report it feels good. T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Roger all. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 214 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, the climb to orbit. To the spectators, four miles away from the launch pad, the scene was mystifying, surreal. The rocket moved. It seemed to levitate, inching upward on a tower of incandescent fire. But there was no sound. Only the unsuspecting seagulls wheeling in the silent sky. And then, the surface of the lagoon in front of the press grandstand suddenly rippled as the shockwave flashed across and thudded into the chest of the spectators and shook the ground beneath their feet and filled their skulls with a crackling thunder that overwhelmed the atmosphere itself. To the million souls who watched awestruck As the great machine ascended, there could not have been the slightest doubt that this thing was leaving the planet. As the rocket disappeared downrange, Dave Levine and the rest of the spacecraft systems experts jumped from their consoles and dashed for the parking lot, where helicopters waited to fly them to the airport for the two-hour ride to Texas. Von Braun, Miller, and their colleagues were close behind. The action shifted to Houston now, to the windowless arena at the manned spacecraft center known as Mission Control. This group takes charge of the flight after the rocket clears the tower. In Houston, the public affairs officer for Apollo 11 was Jack Riley. According to Gene Krantz, Riley was a neat guy. He trained as a member of the Mission Control team and did his best to cover his flight directors, just like a good wingman. Sitting next to Riley was Cliff Charlesworth, the flight director for the launch of Apollo 11. Charlesworth communicated with the flight controllers, giving the crew their goes periodically throughout the launch phase. Beautiful. Downrange, one mile, altitude, three, four miles now. Here, the sun there, so it's a lot. 2,195 feet per second. 
everything fell into place. Still see it? Yes, indeed. Oh, there we're starting the contrast now. See it beautifully. See it beautifully on the everything just go around the screen here. We're through the region of maximum dynamic pressure now. Yeah, everything looks good here. We're at 1350 in the start bar. Eight miles downrange. I'm not sure on the fan. Looking at it on the screen, I'm looking at it out the window. Feet per second. The G load on the crew increased slowly past four, but not much higher. Unlike the Titan booster used for the Gemini program, the Saturn's first stage is more gentle and it does not plaster the astronauts into their seats. To Mike Collins, the four and a half G's were just a little smooch, letting the crew know that the first stage tanks were about empty and ready to be jettisoned. Staging is always a bit of a shock as one set of engines shut down and another five spring into action in their place. The astronauts were jerked forward against their straps then lowered gently again as the second stage fired at T plus 2 minutes 44 seconds. Cliff Charlesworth taking a staging status. Mrs. Houston, you are go for staging. That's for the, uh, that's for dropping the first stage, going through the second stage power. Inboard cutoff. Inboard engines out. Come inboard cutoff. Hearing from the capsule communicator, astronaut Ken Mattingly at uh, Mission Control in Houston talking to the uh, astronaut. Range 35 miles, 30 miles high. Standing by for the outboard engine cut down now. And this is reporting, uh, this is Jack Riley reporting, the voice of Mission Control. There we go. These events are very interesting to us. 11 Houston, thrust is go. All engines, you're looking good. Hi, Roger. You're loud and clear, Houston. The astronauts are now high above the disturbing forces of the atmosphere. Now, at T plus 3 minutes and 17 seconds, precisely on schedule, the launch escape rocket fires as it is no longer needed. As the escape rocket pulls away from the command module's nose, it carries with it the protective cover that has been preventing the crew from seeing out the windows. Now the cockpit is much brighter, but there is not a lot to see except for black sky, as they are already above all the weather. We got the current step. Roger, we confirm the current step. Should have had the launch escape Neil confirming both the engine skirt separation and the launch escape tower separation. Houston, be advised, the visual is go today. <laughs> this is Houston, Roger. Out. What was that? So the visual it's simulation right. is going. Yeah, <laughs> you won't. He can't hear you. What is Eleven Houston, uh, your guidance is converged. You're looking good. The boost protective cover comes off and the windows Down are clear. Down range, 40 miles. Oh. Altitude, 62 miles. Velocity, 10,300 feet per second. 
We've got another uh, four minutes before uh, the first uh, booster says it's looking good at five minutes. Well, then, Houston, you are go at five minutes. The next, uh, the next critical moment will be when that uh, second stage jettisons and we get that uh, fourth stage ignition for the first time. It's got to go. It's going to be most significant Plus nine minutes and eight seconds, the second stage shut down, and the crew waited, weightless, for the ignition and acceleration of the S-4B third stage. Although the third stage ignition occurred on schedule, the momentary wait seemed interminable to the expectant astronauts. Finally, at T plus nine minutes and twelve seconds, the S-4B ignited. The acceleration softly pushed the crew back into their contoured seats. 11, this is Houston. You are go for staging. We're out for 10 seconds away from S4B. Standby for mode 4 capability. Now this should be the firing of the S4B in just 15 seconds. Mode 4 and Apollo 11 could get into orbit using the service propulsion system. PDQ 602 up here. Altitude is 100 miles, downrange 883 miles. PDQ 602 and ignition. Good. There's ignition right on dot. Right on the dot. We're right around. Thrust is go, 11. 700 PSI. 697. There we are. And we have a good third stage now. All eyes in the control room are now on the plot board. As the markers plotting the radar trajectory streak along the flight path and into the third stage cutoff box. There is former President Johnson saying goodbye to a few of his friends in the stands. 
Plus 11 minutes, 42 seconds, Command Module Pilot Mike Collins called out, Cut off. And the controllers scrambled to call up their displays for the orbital go-no-go decision. After a rapid conversation with his controllers in the trench, Fido Dave Reed shouted, Go flight, we are go! Shut down right on time. 101.4 by 103.6. Mm-hmm. Roger, shut down, and we copy 101.4 by 103.6. 101.4 by 103.6, uh, that would be a nautical mile, so the orbit uh, for the uh, spacecraft uh, has been confirmed. They are in Earth orbit. They've made the first big jump on their trip to land on the moon. Are we showing certain This is Houston. The booster is safe. That's another good sign when we see the booster is safe. Quite significant to us. It means that the destruct system has been shut off by a command from the ground so that that S-4B cannot uh, destroy the spacecraft. Uh It's uh, it's designed, of course, if we uh, abort away to disperse the propellants in that S-4B. And we have an escape route, of course, with the escape talon or with burning away from it. It's kind of nice to know it's shut off. At this point, uh, of course, uh, now that they are in Earth orbit, uh, their return it could be a, a, a normal return uh, to a selected landing spot by jettisoning the S-4B third stage and then going on their service propulsion system engine. Just as we were in the Earth orbital flights. Right. Very same thing. So uh, this, this first, uh, always dramatic and... Uh, Obviously, with the great explosive potential of all of that fuel, the dangerous uh, launch phase is passed, and Apollo 11 is on the way. Are looking good, over. Apollo 11, this is Houston Vanguard LOS at uh, 1535, AOS Canaries at uh, 1630, over. That report is on the LOS. We still have. LOS is the loss of signal from the Vanguard, that's uh, one of the tracking ships out in the Atlantic, uh, to the acquisitional signal based the Canary on the Island. from the instrument unit of the third stage of Saturn V. Here on the ground, we're showing an orbit of 102.5 by 99.7 nautical miles. Uh, the flight dynamics officer, Dave Reed, wants to uh, get some radar tracking to refine this orbit. And he will report a refined orbit after more radar tracking. That's very near nominal, uh, isn't it, Wally? 102.5 by 99.7. That's almost 116 miles, uh, uh, statute that's miles. Yes, high. it is. I think you'll notice the figures differ. It's because the radar data hasn't been smoothed yet. The onboard data is probably more nearly correct at this point. The 101.4, 103.6. It really doesn't, uh, it's not critical at this point, uh, the difference uh, in those of one or two miles in the Earth orbit. Uh, 
as long as they're in approximately the right position over the Pacific on that second orbit to, to fire off the S-4B third stage and boost their speed from 17,500 to 25,000 miles an hour, uh, which will put them on their way to the moon. With Apollo 11 in Earth orbit, Command Module Pilot Mike Collins reflected on how the stages had performed. The pogo problem for the first stage seemed to be fixed. But Collins was much more concerned about the second stage. This was the stage which whisperers told him to distrust. The stage of the brittle aluminum. But it held together nicely. Collins called it smooth as glass and as quiet and serene as any rocket ride could be. Obviously, the workers at North American Rockwell had worked hard to catch up with the time lags in the S-2 program and produced a wonderfully performing S-2 stage for Apollo 11. Collins thought the third stage had a character all its own. It was not nearly as smooth as the second stage. Instead, he called it crisp and rattly. It vibrated and buzzed slightly but not alarmingly so. Overall, the Saturn V had given the astronauts an excellent ride to orbit. The first critical phase of this flight is over, the launch. They're now in Earth orbit. They are now over the Atlantic, approaching the coast of Africa, and in touch uh, shortly with the Canary tracking station, when we may hear some more from them, and then out over Africa, the Indian Ocean, past Australia, and back around for the first trip across the United States. On the second trip around, uh, they, will, uh, they will launch themselves out toward the moon itself. Before we end the episode, I wanted to play a couple of very relevant and interesting interviews conducted by Walter Cronkite at the Cape shortly after the launch of Apollo 11. The first interview is with former President Lyndon Johnson. You may recall, in 1957 and 58, Lyndon Johnson was the Senate Majority Leader and leader of the Democratic political opposition to Republican President Dwight Eisenhower. As a partially political move, Johnson created a huge controversy over the Soviets' launch of the first satellite, Sputnik. This controversy forced the president into a public space race he did not want. But that race led to the amazing accomplishments of the next decade, including the first human landings on the moon. Also, while majority leader of the United States Senate, Lyndon Johnson was instrumental in obtaining passage of the National Aeronautics and Space Act of 1958, which stated that the policy of the United States activities in space should be devoted to peaceful purposes for the benefit of all mankind. This act also led to the creation of NASA. On April 25, 1961, President John F. Kennedy signed legislation making Vice President Lyndon Johnson head of the National Aeronautics and Space Council with the charge of exploring the feasibility of landing a man on the moon within the decade. But, by 1966 and 67, President Johnson desperately needed to cut expenditures to pay for the escalating Vietnam War. 
Therefore, he began the reduction in funding of the space program he had worked so hard to sell to the government and to the public. I'm delighted to have with us as my guest, former President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Good to see you, sir. Can we put a microphone on you here, sir? I uh, greeted you before we were able to get that uh, attached up there. There we are. I think you're wired for sound now, sir. Thank you, you had, uh, you said yesterday at uh, lunch, uh, Mr. President, that uh, you had flown along on every one of these missions, uh, but those you watched uh, on your television monitor at the White House, and this one you saw for the first time in person. An awesome sight, wasn't it, sir? It certainly was, Walter. It's a great thrill. Uh, I had the feeling that great concern for the outcome of this flight. We haven't reached the end. It's just the beginning. It's been a long time uh, in going as far as we have. It, the decision was actually taken 12 or 13 years ago. Uh, it made possible uh, that awesome sight this morning when President Eisenhower put an extra $100 million in a very tight budget back in 1958. But uh, you never get the feeling uh, on one of these blast-offs, uh, sitting in a room watching them on the camera, that you get to seeing them in person. And as uh, they took off there this morning, I thought about how fortunate we've been all these years to have had a minimum of accident. And I know that all of our people are going to have great concern until this is finished. Another reaction I had was this awesome sight and as uh, they started to lift off it just seemed like uh, a half a million people who'd worked on this program through the years each of them were there lifting just their all and trying to see that uh, great power uh, going to the skies. And another thought I had was if we can do all of that in such a short time. I wonder why it is that uh, we can't uh, put that same effort to bring good and peace to all the world. I thought uh, as we went in the sky there this morning of the Space Act itself and its declaration uh, that we were engaged in this endeavor to bring peace to mankind. And uh, I don't believe there's a single thing that our country does, our government does, our people uh, that uh, has greater potential for peace than the space effort. As I walked out uh, from the blast off, I saw that special section of ambassadors there from all the nations of the world all taking such great pride in America's effort, all entertaining such great hope for the success of uh, this mission. And I recall that uh, after Apollo 8, uh, uh, I sent uh, to the leaders of the world a picture of the Earth taken from that mission. And the response was universally favorable and hopeful. And they all expressed great admiration for our people. You know, uh, 
when you conducted the search for the first tent of the space agency, the National Aeronautics and Space Agency, uh, as the leader in the Senate and later as the vice president, and you found, came up with James Webb as the head of that agency, the man who put this tremendous management team together, marshaled all these forces, these half a million people who had to work in plants all over the country, the, the cable made in Vermont, the beta cloth made in Massachusetts, the thing in Kansas City, and right on across the country. Every state contributed something. Uh, Mr. Webb has said since then that he thinks that this is one of the great spin-offs of this program, is the management techniques, the systems engineering that made this thing possible. And he'd like to see that sort of systems engineering and management applied to jobs like peace. Have, have, uh, have you talked that over with him and thought how that might be done? We talk about if we can spend $24 billion, we can do any, to get to the moon, we can then do anything. Well, how do we translate that into action and do anything? Mr. Webb just returned from a trip abroad, and he was telling me of the many statements uh, that he heard from heads of state about our peace program and the potentialities that it offered uh, uh, in that field. Uh, I was always told that uh, you ought to, in selecting a manager for an operation, pick the best man you could, give him the implements he needs, tell him what his objective is, and then let him get the job done. That's what President Kennedy did uh, in the space effort uh, back in 61 when he made this commitment of this country and asked the Congress to join in that commitment. We had, uh, President Kennedy had already appointed Mr. Webb uh, to direct it. Then he gave him the objective, and we're on our way today to realizing that objective. We must have uh, other objectives. Uh, this peace effort is uh, is the principal one, I think, in the hearts of every human being in the world. All three billion of them can't understand why we have to go on dying and fighting uh, uh, when we can do so many wonderful things. Why it is we can't learn to get along with each other. And it may be that under the leadership of the cream of our young manhood in the space effort and the uh, President of the United States and the leaders of the space field, that we can bring about a joint effort of some kind. Back in 58, I urged President Eisenhower to say to the other nations of the world, let's all join in a united space program. Uh, we've been unable up to now to get other nations to agree, but President Nixon and uh, the administration very shortly will be engaged in the discussions and negotiations with other leaders. And it may be that uh, more will come out of this than we know now. Well, it's uh, certainly something we can rest our hopes in, even as we rest our hopes in those three men aboard Apollo 11. Well, as we walked away this morning, I thought of three things that uh, I felt very deeply. Concern for the men and their safety. The great awe for what I had just seen uh, as they took off. And uh, something you don't hear much about these days, but great pride in this country and its ability to set aside partisanship and differences and quarreling among its scientists and among its industry leaders and its government leaders. If there's been any of that, I, it's been held to a minimum, and I know very little. But if our industrial people, these great managers of industry, if the laboring people of the country, the government, the scientists, all with the help of the Congress can get together and do a job like this, 
there's just not anything we can't do. And there's so much that we have yet to do with the hunger in the world, with the sickness in the world, with the poverty in the world. We must apply some of the great talents that we've applied to space to all these problems and get them done, and get them done in the spirit uh, uh, of uh, uh, what's uh, good, uh, uh, the greatest good for the greatest number. I think where we're better than anyone could ever suspect is in the openness of this entire program. Everything we've done, we've done it with the tourists going through the, the space program, seeing everything, with the media cooperating, everything in front of the camera. There are no secrets. In, uh, you know, sir, it's been incredible this week. I was amazed. Here we are in the midst of this uh, terribly detailed, complicated program with Dr. Devis and all his people and Rocco Patron out there on the pad and all of them working. And uh, you come out here to, to shoot a press story, a film story at the pad, and here are the buses rolling up uh, with 50 people aboard uh, from uh, all parts of the United States and the world, getting out, looking around the pad. It's as wide open as it could be. That's something our system has that no other system has yet equaled, and I think that's one of the reasons we have the strength we do. Thank you, that, sir. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Mr. Cronkite also interviewed the Vice President, Spiro T. Agnew. Perhaps you recall, as the Apollo program reached its climax in 1969, President Nixon directed Vice President Agnew's National Space Council to recommend a future direction of the U.S. manned space program. Agnew enthusiastically supported an ambitious space transportation system program, including reusable spacecraft, permanent Earth and lunar stations, and human flight to Mars. Here's the interview. Here with me at our CBS News Space Center is the distinguished Vice President of the United States, who is here to watch this launching in his role as the Chief of the uh, Space Council. Vice President Agnew, so good to see you, sir. Uh, and this was quite a launch, wasn't it? Indeed it was. Each one of them is quite a launch, but uh, I think the more you see, the more exciting they get. First one I've seen from the outside. It's even more exciting out there. Did it, was there anything about the launch that surprised you? Just that it seemed to go easier than the other two. Uh, I think you get to learn a little bit about the things that make you apprehensive, like the lean-out when it starts. It scared the dickens out of me the first time. I know it does, doesn't it? And the slow climb, too, I yes. think is, is uh, frightening the first time you see it. Even though you know it's going to be that way, you just can't believe that uh, it's really moving. You get that sense of uh, you're waiting for something to take off very quickly, and it doesn't happen. Yeah. But it was a beautiful sight. It was. It was indeed. And uh, I'm just filled with a, a real feeling of great pride for, for these people, not just the three men that are in Earth orbit now, but the, the people behind the program. They're so dedicated. I, I just see a great future for this program. Out there, uh, when it went up, uh, there were tears in the eyes of many people who were told it's something that happens to you. There's an, a real emotional release as you, as you watch that thing go up. And, uh, and it must mean so much, as you suggest, to the thousands of people who are out here on this Cape who have put everything into this mission, who are the unsung heroes of it. Yes. I've had a chance to, to get to know some of the astronauts uh, because of being down for these shots. And I just want to say to the people in the country that these are the greatest, most dedicated men I've ever run into in or out of public life, military life, anywhere. They, they have a sense of uh, 
purpose, a sense of modesty that's uh, overwhelming, and, and they're so natural. They're, they're the greatest ambassadors we have, certainly. You know, it's the nature of the American and the people in the space program particularly to constantly look beyond where we are. Uh, this is uh, the nature of the man who wants to go to the moon. Uh, now we're on the way to the moon. We have high hopes for the success of this mission. It's not over by any means. We've gotten over the first big hurdle. We're out there in orbit. We've got a lot more to go. Landing on the moon hasn't been accomplished yet, and it's a tough job to do. But you were quoted as saying, uh, and everybody's looking forward what you're saying, as an indication of uh, what this administration's intentions will be toward space and beyond the moon. Uh, you were quoted as saying that, uh, well, well let, me, let me read the quote, and, and let's uh, talk about it a moment. He said, I think the United States should undertake a very ambitious new project in space. I think we shouldn't be ashamed to attempt something, even though the scientific probability is in doubt. I think we should attempt interplanetary explanation, exploration in a man's sense. Uh, do you just think that, or do you I'm sort of plan that, that with uh, the Space Council? Well, the Space Council doesn't have the, the thrust to do any planning right now. Uh, we're engaged to in a task force effort to present some recommendations to the president by September as to uh, what happens after Apollo, assuming that this is a successful mission. And, of course, we have other Apollo flights to follow. But we feel, uh, we in the task force feel, that uh, we must articulate a broad objective for the future. Now, there's a great amount of disagreement among uh, the people who are participating in these discussions. And I would have to say, as I said this morning that I represent a, a minority viewpoint in saying that we should should be a little bit forthcoming in, in saying where we're trying to go, even though the technology may not be as, uh, as advanced as it should be to say it from a sense of scientific probability. Uh, I understand this happened once before when President Kennedy uh, uh, made his uh, objective uh, the moon landing. Uh, it's very easy to forego the optimistic long-range approach to these things uh, because you can always find a, a hundred reasons not to to do it or why it may fail but with the way science has advanced in the past 50 years uh, I don't think we'd be out of line in saying for example we're going to put a man on Mars by the end of this century and I think we should do it because based on the rate of progress that we've shown I think it's possible that even if we don't say it, it's going to happen. I think the, the people in the country, the, the average man, wants uh, something to look forward to as an objective, as an exciting objective. I know all the objections about uh, the spending of the money, but the space program will probably turn out to be our, one of our best investments in time. And what about then the next step? The, uh, the space people are talking about then moving on immediately to the large space station, orbiting space station. you think the people are ready for that step? Well, of course, that's a step that probably has to come about uh, as an intermediate move before we could even think about interplanetary operations. Uh, uh, we, uh, I think, get a little blasé in our country living in the midst of all the technical miracles that we have performed in the United States. We, we live with them. We're already getting the spin-off in the space thing. Teflon, for instance, just as one small example, and the transistors and all these things. We live with them every day. I think that maybe the American people might find a new inspiration for 
further excitement towards space exploration when they hear how the world reacts to this feat. We seem to have our attention more and more directed uh, to the world reaction. Now, last night, uh, I, I had a chance to talk with Colonel Stafford. Commander Cernan just came back from Finland. He found a, a, an outpouring of uh, sentiment in that country, uh, an affinity, an identification with uh, the United States. After all, this is something that, that you can apply patriotism to without the horrors of war. Now, the space people point out that it only takes one half of one percent of our gross national product uh, to have enough of a budget for them to go on with the program, four billion dollars a year. Thank you very much, Vice President. Pleasure I know they're waiting for you uh, over at the firing room. Thank uh, you for I'll having talk me. talk to the fellows over there. Thank you very much, sir. So, we've seen a, another beautiful Saturn launch, but this one will never be known in history or by those of us who watched it as just another Saturn V launch. Not if all goes well, because this is the flight uh, from which man will first set foot on the moon. Uh, we almost glibly toss that line away now, man on the moon. But by golly, just think it over. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 214 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11, The Climb to Orbit. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I surely did. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed, and I want to extend a warm welcome to my new listeners, I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that as well as download every episode of the podcast on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the Salute Skylab level donors. There are four so far this year. Salute Skylab donors give $60 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Salute Skylab donors. I have a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. First uh, of all, a scheduling note. Next week, we will have an Encore episode. You may know that here in the U.S., we will be having Independence Day next week, and I have got a ton of things I have to get done next week. I just will not have enough time to complete the next episode by next week. I don't want to have to rush through it, and I really want to give it the time it deserves. These Apollo 11 episodes, we've all been waiting for, I think, for a long time, and I want to give it the time it needs to be a great episode. So, we will resume with the story of Apollo 11 in two weeks. Next week, I picked out a very relevant episode that goes right along with the Saturn V stages that put Apollo 11 into orbit. Hopefully you will enjoy that. Also, I would like to apologize for the buzzing sound on some of those clips. I did my best to get rid of it, but I was not entirely successful, as you could hear. Also on the clips, I wanted to mention that I did edit those down to get rid of some of the non-speaking parts and the uh, chit-chat, so they weren't actually in real time. I cut some stuff out of that just to 
keep the action moving. I hope you found those two interviews interesting at the end. Those were two very important people, President Johnson and Spiro T. Agnew, that uh, I wanted to hear what they thought right after the launch. Now, Spiro T. Agnew, I don't know why we always call him Spiro T. Agnew. Why do we have to put the T in? But somehow it just doesn't sound right saying Spiro Agnew. You have to put the T in. Maybe it's like James T. Kirk. I don't know. But you got to put a Spiro T. Agnew, or at least that's the way I remember it from my childhood. Now, he presented a very hopeful future of space exploration. And, of course, we did not have that occur, as you know. But I do wish that optimism could have been fulfilled. Landing on Mars before the end of the century, that would have been amazing. In fact, I can remember thinking, why would it take all the way to the end of the century, the year 2000, which seemed like an impossibly long future date to me as a child, why would it take so long to go to Mars since if we were already accomplishing the moon? But that's a child's point of view. I believe if the funding would have been there, NASA could have achieved a Mars landing, a human Mars landing, before the end of the century, before the year 2000. But of course, that didn't happen. Now, I do have a couple of bonus clips. The first has to do with the benefit of previous spaceflight experience. I'm sure you remember that all three of the astronauts flew in Gemini before Apollo. Well, a common measure of astronaut excitement is their heart rate at liftoff. Here's the clip. And uh, we're told that their heart rates uh, for this flight have just been revealed to us were far below what each of them recorded on their first Gemini flight. They've each had one flight before. Uh, Armstrong, Collins, and Aldrin all had a Gemini flight. And just listen to this. Uh, these are some pretty cool test pilots up there. Armstrong had a heart rate uh, uh, at liftoff of 110. He had a 146 on his Gemini flight. Collins was down to 99. He had 125 on his first flight. Aldrin came in low at only 88, and in the first Gemini flight, he also was low at 110. But what uh, cool, unexcitable test pilots these men are. They sit there on top of that uh, uh, huge Saturn rocket, 36 stories high, up there, on top of all of that explosive fuel, those engines pounding out 7.5 million pounds of thrust on the liftoff. They're making this historic flight for a man to go to the moon, and their heartbeat is down at that point. It's uh, remarkable. How about that Buzz Aldrin? He's not going to let a little thing like a Saturn V launch get him to its side, is he? <laughs> the next clip comes from a CBS newsman interviewing some spectators who watched the launch from the beach. Walter, when the moment came, which everybody had been waiting for, it seemed to stun them into a kind of frozen disbelief. They couldn't quite believe that man was finally on his way to worlds outside the one where he began. And as it rose higher and higher, they began finally to 
move the eyes upward. In a tennis match, you look back and forth. At a rocket launch, you just keep going up and up, your eyes going up, your hopes going up. And finally, the whole crowd, like some vast, many-eyed crab, was staring out and up and up, and all very silent. There was a little small awe when the rocket first went up. But after that, it was just staring and reaching. It was the, the poetry of hope, if you will, unspoken, but seen in the kind of concentrated gestures that people had as they reached up and up with the rocket. And some of the worried little that seemed to be flattening out, but I guess you who know the geography of space better know that it really was heading for the moon at that moment. Now I have here with me a lot of patient people who've waited around because they wanted to say what they thought about it. What did you think about it, sir? I thought it was marvelous. Very good. And this lady has been toweling me off from time to time and deserves to say what she thought. It's a thrill of a lifetime. And how about over here? What did you think, ma'am? Oh, wonderful. I saw the first one, Shepherd, go up. I've seen 12 of them right from this beach, but this is beautiful. Well, you really ought to get some kind of medal for watching so many. How about you? I came all the way from San Francisco, and boy, this is something really w worth seeing, really. Do you think that the young people, it means more to them than it does to the older people like me? Oh, yes. I think it's fantastic. I came all the way from Washington, D.C. just to see this. The first live one I've seen. How about you, ma'am? You've been very patient here. Has it meant a lot to you? Yes, sir. Hey, I've come from Lagrange, Georgia, all the way down here to see it. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Have you been camping here overnight or something? I've been staying with my husband's mother and daddy down here on the beach. I mean, below the beach down here. Now, taking it even further down into youth, what did you think about it? That was groovy. <laughs> <laughs> and you? Well, I thought it was pretty nice the way the first day shot off. You seem more knowledgeable about it. Would you like to have been on it yourself? No. <laughs> Later, maybe? Maybe. Well, now, let's ask somebody else here. What did, did it impress you very much? Yes, I had five cameras, and I had five people, and all of us were working them all together. We got pictures right here, and now and it's beautiful. And this makes us feel proud. Outside, everywhere in the world, anybody, we're proud of it. Well, now, also, of course, most of you went to a lot of trouble to get here, and what you saw really was a sort of a minute of flame. Was it worth it? Sure was. I've got, I've asked the, uh, I won't say the old, I've asked the young and the mature what they thought. Let's see, is there anybody in the 20s who might be an astronaut here? Well, uh, what would, what did you think about it all? Oh, I'd... It was really an experience watching it go up. I mean, you know, we hitchhiked down from Michigan to see it. And it was like, oh, well, it's kind of an experience like when they light the torch for the Olympics or something. You know, it just gives you a good feeling inside you can. Groovy, huh? <laughs> Been a long time since I heard that expression. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. I was very pleased to receive eight new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Preston R. donated at actually well beyond the Orion level and earned his rocket emoji. Thank you for your generosity, Preston. Peter M. from California donated at the Apollo level. Michael S. from the UK donated at the Apollo level. Martin K. donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. Edward R. from Georgia donated at the Mercury level. Tobias S. from Austria made a second donation this year 
and is promoted to the Soyuz level. Robert B. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level, and Paul S. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level as well. So that brings the total Patreons to 114. That is 36 short of the goal of 150 before the end of the year. And our overall donors have reached 192 with a goal of 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a $1 per month donation, sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. For those of you who have already donated in 2017, I certainly appreciate it, and I have several of these Orion Desk Model Kits to give out. The model is an Orion spacecraft service module and the solar arrays. It is made out of cardstock, and to assemble it, you just push out the pre-cut parts and fold them together. To select the winner for this week, I gave every donor a number between 1 and 192. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number 23. Donor number 23 is Kenneth Atkinson. Kenneth, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me where you would like this sent, I will mail it out to you. I was pleased to see the podcast received three new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I'd like to thank Jacob Itameo and CU Cowboy for taking the time and effort to write a very kind review and giving the podcast the all-important five-star rating. We had one anonymous five-star rating, and I want to thank whoever did that. I certainly do appreciate it. Want to encourage everyone to share the podcast? Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who've already done so. We'll get to those retweeters next time on episode 215. This is the end of content for this episode. You are welcome to stay and listen to my off topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will have an encore episode, and the following week, we will continue with Apollo 11. That will be episode 215. In podcast news, I would like to thank Terry B. from England for getting the podcast a mention in the prestigious British Interplanetary Society newsletter. Also, I would like to congratulate SpaceX on getting two successful launches on opposite sides of the country over the past weekend and They also nailed the landings. They are mighty impressive. Excellent work from SpaceX. Okay, that's about all the time I have for this week. Sorry this episode ran so long. I will try to have next week's Encore up by Thursday. Then we will have 2.15 the following week. So long for now.